0: Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Habakkuk, chapter 1. Continuing our series going through the book of Habakkuk with Habakkuk, chapter 1, starting in verse 5 and going through verse 11. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar, They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. When I was in college, I was tasked once uh, with writing thank you notes for the church camp I worked for. And we were using a pack of pre-made Christian thank you notes with different Bible verses that were printed on them. And I remember one of the verses on the cards that I used on the front, it said, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And it listed second Timothy 414. And there's nothing too strange about that sentiment, right? It's a thank you card. It's trying to convey that God saw the gift and he will therefore bless the giver. And in reality, it's not quite that simple all the time, but it's a thank you card. So whatever, it doesn't make any difference. But I happened to be reading through the pastoral epistles at that time. And I had actually just read 2 Timothy 4.14 a day or two before that. And something just seemed off to me in my mind whenever I read that. But I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Uh, so then I looked it up. And here is what 2 Timothy 4.14 actually says. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Oh, that's not a thank you card. That's not a verse that should be on a thank you card. That's not a thank you card message. It's not a card that you would send to someone that you like. That's a card that you send to your enemies. It's a card that comes with a warning. It's a scary card. But the words are the same, right? Like they didn't change any words. They deleted the first sentence. But they didn't change anything within it. And it didn't seem that scary at first, did it? But it was taken out of context. And when you read the Bible out of context, you'll usually end up reading it wrongly. Sometimes when you read it in context, you might be surprised by what it's actually saying, by what it actually does say. The Bible doesn't always say the things that we expect it to say. And in today's text, we get God's first response to the complaint of Habakkuk. We talked last week about the complaints that Habakkuk had, that it seemed like all he saw was violence and sin. He was in a world surrounded by evil, and he was crying out to God, saying, Hey, don't you see this? Aren't you going to act? Aren't you going to do something? Help us. We're your chosen people. And it's not the response or answer that you would assume God would give based on Habakkuk's complaint. Even if the first verse, out of context, might end up giving us a hopeful picture of what's coming. So today, we'll see three unexpected lessons from God's unexpected answers. Three unexpected lessons we can learn from God's unexpected answers to our prayers. The first unexpected lesson that we can learn from God's unexpected answers in today's text is that we don't always perceive God's answers correctly. We don't always get it right the first time. Verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, when you read that verse, if you don't know what the rest of this passage says, if I hadn't already read you verses 6 through 11, if I hadn't already given you the introduction that I had, your mind would probably go somewhere nice with that, right? Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded for I'm doing a work in your days that you wouldn't even believe if you were told. It sounds warm and fuzzy, right? It sounds like something we want to hear. It feels like it should come on one of those motivational posters with a world map or maybe a flower pushing through the concrete. But once you read the other verses in this text, the next six in this passage, all of a sudden the meaning shifts drastically. Drastically. It goes from being put on a Thomas Kincaid painting to being put on a warning label to being the verse that's at the bottom of a death metal album. And it's important to note and point out that we can quickly and easily misread this verse when we take it out of context. And that this isn't the only verse that we tend to do that with. There are a lot of verses like that. And when we try to cheaply take the truth that we think we read in a nice verse... When we turn that into a slogan, when we put it on a thank you card without really thinking too much about it, I think we rob ourselves. We're allowing ourselves to be thinly comforted by a half-truth or maybe even a mistruth, something that's not actually what the text is saying at all. And we're robbing ourselves because we have the chance to draw real, deep, and lasting comfort from the full weight of what God's word has for us. This verse... This passage is not immediately comforting. There's not much in today's text that is immediately comforting. But I think when we come out the other side. When we get to the end of Habakkuk and look back on this verse. The entire journey along the way. We'll be able to draw real. Deep. Lasting comfort. From everything that we read in this text. We'll be able to look and see. To wonder and to be astounded at the work of God in our days and in all days. Beyond what we have the capacity to believe or maybe immediately understand when we are told. But at first glance, verse 5 shows us that because we have a tendency to assume the quick and fluffy good for ourselves. And whatever it is that we read, we don't always perceive God's answers correctly. Because his work is wider than we think it is. His first admonition to Habakkuk is that the prophet is thinking too small, that his vision is too limited. Look among the nations and see. Habakkuk is focused on his context, surrounded by his people in his situation and his predicaments. He's complaining to God for a solution and assuming that the solution is to be found internally within the nation of Judah. He thinks that Judah's problems can be solved if God will work within Judah to make the Israelites do what they're supposed to do. He's not asking for outside help. He's not asking for someone from around to come in and to do what God has for them to do. He's certainly not thinking that God might use the wider world as his means of fixing the situation in Judah. And I wonder how often do we have that same idea? How often do we cry out for God to fix our country, to fix our world, to turn it back to him without thinking that maybe he's already doing that? He just might not be doing it right in front of our face. I wonder if we'd be satisfied with a revival which spread throughout the whole world, but it started in Moscow rather than Missouri. Maybe even if the U.S. was the last place that got reached. I think God tends to work wider than we think. So, the more inward our eyes turn, the more immediate our prayers become, the less likely we are to understand the work that He is doing. Look among the nations and see His plans. The plan that God is putting into motion isn't just unexpected because Habakkuk misunderstood, it's not just unexpected because it's coming from outside the nation. But it's unexpected because God is working wonders, great and terrifying wonders. Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Part of the reason we initially misinterpret this verse is because when we hear the word wonder, we don't hear the same thing the Bible is saying when it says that word. When I hear wonder, you know what I think of? I think of wonder bread. I think of white bread in a brightly colored package. And as wonderful as that bread may be, though I wouldn't know because since it's twice as much as the great value bread, I never buy it. Never will. It may be incredible. Absolutely wonderful. But however wonderful it is, I really don't think I'm going to be astounded by it. I think if you tried to tell me how good it is, if you tried to tell me what it tastes like, why it costs twice as much as the great value bread, I think I'd be able to believe you pretty quickly. I don't think it's just so unbelievable that even if you told me, I wouldn't understand. But the wonders of God are not like wonder bread. That mass-produced white bread wonder pales in comparison to the glory shown in the wonders of God. And most often in scripture, when it talks about the wonderful works of God, it's usually talking about something really scary. It's talking about something that astounds us by how wonderful and magnificent God is, that his power is able to enact such a great and terrifying wonder as it is that we see. Consider the Exodus. Exodus 3, verses 19 and 20, it says this. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. This is God talking to Moses before he goes to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. So the wonders God is talking about in this verse, in this passage here in Exodus, are the ten plagues he's about to send to Egypt. Water turned to blood. A nation covered in frogs, lice, fleas, and locusts, fiery hail big enough to kill people, darkness, boils, the death of every firstborn son in the kingdom. These are the wonders of the Lord that that verse is talking about. So when Habakkuk hears that he should wonder and be astounded, that this wonder that he is about to see is beyond belief. Even if God told him exactly what was about to happen, he knows, whether we would know or not, immediately, that he hasn't gotten the answer that he expected. So we can know that we don't always perceive God's answers correctly. But even if or when we do perceive God's answers correctly, God doesn't always give us the answer we want that's the second unexpected lesson from God's unexpected answers in today's text. God doesn't always give us the answers we want. Look at verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. It's not the answer Habakkuk wanted because it didn't use the people Habakkuk wanted to be used. I said just a second ago, he thought this was a problem within Judah, which should be addressed within Judah. He didn't want someone from the outside coming in and telling them how it should be done. Someone from the outside fixing their problems. Maybe even someone from the outside standing in judgment over the Israelites. And yet, in Scripture, we'll see over and over that God very often brings outsiders into a situation so that his plans can be enacted. But we tend not to like that. It's new. It's different. It's foreign. Therefore, in our minds, it must be bad. And in a lot of circumstances, this mindset really isn't that big a deal, right? If we're talking about organizational change, if we're talking about church culture change, a lot of times what we're talking about are pretty minor details, pretty small shifts that come with new vision, new blood, new people being involved in that situation. But sometimes I think God uses someone from the outside to do something massive. And something that's ultimately good for his people in a major way. And as I was reading this text and thinking over this this week, the the example that kept popping in my head was thinking about this dynamic as it relates to situations of church abuse. Our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, has gotten a lot of, I think, well-deserved flack over the last few years because we had a culture that didn't want any outside influence helping us deal with hard situations. When an area of abuse would be found, there were people who always wanted to handle it internally, quietly, quickly. Sometimes they wouldn't even handle it internally and publicly. There was no church discipline process, no transparency, just a quick severance package, a quick office clean-out. They didn't want to get the authorities involved. They didn't want to run the risk of ending up on the news, so they refused any sort of outside influence, even that which we are often required by law to do. And I think those people, though they are Christians, were wrong. Even if it meant public pain, public heartache and scandal, bringing in someone from the outside, the police, lawyers, counselors, to do what needed to be done would have been the right thing. But for them, because that might have meant God using people from outside, To do what needed to be done inside the church. Some Christians balked. And I think we were wrong to do that. In whatever instances that may have occurred. But that doesn't directly deal with what we're talking about in Habakkuk, does it? This instance in Habakkuk isn't God dealing with the problems inside Judah by bringing in police to help with a situation of abuse. It's not an outside force for good to correct the evil of God's people. It is an outside force of evil coming in to judge the also evil of God's people. The Chaldeans, who in history are the Babylonians, the Neo-Babylonian Empire under Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar, they are not the good guys in pretty much any story that you would ever be able to read. This wasn't God using true followers or true believers to overthrow the hypocrites inside Judah like Habakkuk wanted. That's what Habakkuk wanted to happen. He said, get rid of these bad people and replace them with good people inside, with in ourselves. And that's not what God did. This was the evil empire overthrowing a bad king. Before we get into any of the other details about them we see in the text, and we will, it introduces them as bad people. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. That is not an endearing description. It's not a good flavor combination. You hear sweet and salty and you think, mmm, that sounds good. Bitter and hasty? That's not what you want. Zero out of ten, I would not recommend that. God immediately clues us in that these are not good people. This isn't the cavalry coming in to save the day. And Habakkuk can't imagine how this could possibly go well. God, you're telling me that you're solving injustice with those guys? God, you don't hire a bull to work behind the counter in a china shop. There's no way that ends well. You don't hire a wolf to shepherd the sheep. That's not what wolves do. And you don't use the Babylonians if your goal is justice. And yet sometimes God uses people we wish he wouldn't to accomplish his purposes. And that's because his plans don't have the same results that ours do. He not only uses people we don't want him to use, but he enacts results we often wish he wouldn't. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. So now we learn not only are the bad people coming, but the bad people are coming to take things that don't belong to them. They're coming for your stuff, Habakkuk, your house, your land, your people and nation. They're coming from far off, the breadth of the earth away, to come to this place and to take these things from you people in particular. That is not what Habakkuk thought would happen when he cried out to God. He didn't see God using these people, and he certainly didn't think it would end up like this. I'm reminded of that scene in A Christmas Carol when Marley tells Scrooge that he's going to change Scrooge's ways. And the way that he's going to do that is to haunt him with three spirits. Scrooge's first question is, is that the chance and hope that you were talking about? Marley answers yes. Scrooge says, I think I'd rather not. No, thank you. If that's your plan, if that's your answer to the situation that you have been given, I think I would rather have pretty much anything else happen than what you just said. No, thank you. In Habakkuk's mind, it's like fixing a paper cut by chopping off the finger. Whoa, whoa, whoa I, didn't I just need a Band-Aid? I didn't know it was that bad. That seems drastic. That seems like things are actually worse. How is this better? Habakkuk thought God wasn't listening. He thought God wasn't seeing what was happening. But now God told Habakkuk, no, you take, look, take a look around. You see what's going on. Habakkuk said there's no justice. There's only perversions of justice. And then God answers in verse 7. He says that he's sending people with their own brand of justice that Habakkuk's not going to like. Habakkuk has been crying out about the violence he sees. And God's answer is to send to people who are coming for violence. To do violence. It's like God's answer to Habakkuk was, you ain't seen nothing yet, Habakkuk. Habakkuk, you just ain't seen nothing yet. You think it's bad now? It's only getting worse. This is not what Habakkuk wanted. And from our perspective, we would look at this and say that it also isn't what he needed, right? We tend to assume that the best response when someone is having a hard time The best response when you're in a tough situation is to remove the painful circumstances. To remove what makes it hard. Remove what makes it tough. The last thing we ever want to do is to pile on. But when you read this, it really seems, it really feels like God is piling on in this moment, doesn't it? And I'm sure there have been times, moments, seasons, years, months in your life where it has felt like God is just piling on. Like things were bad and you prayed and it got worse. Where you felt like you could have handled any one of these problems. But now that they're all coming at the same time, they're all coming one after the other. For you, it feels like God just has it out for you. Like God hasn't given you the answer. The relief that you wanted. But even as we learn that unexpected lesson, that God doesn't always give us the answers that we want Him to give us, we have to know and remember the final unexpected lesson from today's text God works good from man's evil. When presented with the evil of man, God takes that situation, He takes those circumstances, And from them, he works his own goodness. So even when everything feels like it is as bad as it can be, even when it feels like life is just piling on and it's become too much for you to bear, know that God works good from man's evil. And he does that so often without us even knowing or realizing what's happening. Verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. God begins to elaborate so that Habakkuk knows exactly what to expect from the nation that is on its way to judge God's people. Said Habakkuk, they are dreaded and fearsome. If you thought the Israelites were mean, you just wait. But notice what God is saying here with some of his irony. Their justice And dignity goes forth from where? Themselves. So I need you to follow with me here because when we notice what we're about to see in the text, it's going to change our perspective on this entire interaction. God is saying to Habakkuk, he is telling him that God is going to bring about justice. That God is going to answer the complaints of Habakkuk by sending to them the Chaldeans. A bitter, hasty, dreaded, and fearsome people. And that bitter, hasty, dreaded, and fearsome people have their own brand of justice. And yet God sends them for his justice. They think that they are coming to do whatever they want to do. And yet they're coming to do exactly as God intended for them to do. They think they're a dreaded and fearsome people, and yet God is simply using them like pawns. They're not even the main characters in this story. As dreaded and fearsome and bitter and hasty as that nation may be, they are a footnote in the plan of God. So when God works good for man's evil, he can do so without their knowledge. They're not thinking as they come, oh, the Israelites really deserve this because they rebelled against their God. They're just doing it because they wanted to. And yet then doing what they wanted to do is actually within the perfect, sovereign plan of the God of the universe. Without them or us having any idea that that is what he's doing, he can still make good come from evil. And as he does so... He tends to use what we would call pretty ordinary means, right? Verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. When we talk or joke about the judgment of God, which is probably something we shouldn't be doing whenever we think about it, but how do we tend to characterize it when we do that? It's a lightning bolt, right? Right? You're about to get zapped. It's fire falling from the sky. It's the earth opening up to swallow you within it. But when the Babylonians come to judge and overthrow Judah, they won. Why? Because their horses were fast and fierce. Horsemen that rode quickly and who knew what they were doing. God is saying that they're going to win because their army is better. And that just seems to make sense, doesn't it? Like, if you're laying odds at the beginning of a fight, the guy who's bigger and stronger is probably the one that you think is going to win every time. And that's what God is saying. They're bigger than you. They're stronger than you. They're better than you. They're faster than you. They want it more than you do. They're going to win. It just makes sense. And in this instance, in this way, God's judgment could seem, it could feel so ordinary. As if it's just the naturally occurring thing that would have happened anyway, even if God hadn't intervened. As he's judging the people and working good for man's evil, he's using ordinary, everyday, worldly means to do it. So when we're in the midst of persecution, when we're in the midst of trials, in the midst of life piling on more than we can bear, I think we need to pay more attention to the everyday, more attention to the ordinary. The things that just make sense. Can and does he work supernaturally and extraordinarily? Yes, you bet. But I think he tends to do what he does by taking that which appears to be ordinary and making something extraordinary out of it. He does so when he makes good out of evil, and he also does so when he makes good out of good. The five loaves and two fish didn't become enough to feed 5,000 all at once. Sometimes we act like we really want God to sweep through with revival in our country, in our city, in our church. We want to see lost people saved. But what we mean by that a lot of times is that we actually want him to do it extraordinarily and all at once. We want the spirit to fall one Sunday and for thousands of people from all of Conway magically to show up, to hear the gospel, to flood the altars, to be saved, for us to immediately baptize them, and then we go out and we take the city for God. That's what we act like we want all the time. Like we want them to believe and get baptized and that that is how we will know that revival has come because it came suddenly, all at once, magically, in a way that there's going to be a movie about it in like two or three years. That's what we so often want and think that that means that God is moving. But we can't neglect or ignore the ordinary and how God often works. Maybe revival is crazy. Maybe it is awe-inspiring. Or maybe revival is just you asking that non-Christian friend of yours if they want to read the Bible with you. If they want to talk about what it says. Maybe it's you starting to pray out loud with your spouse every day. Studying just a few verses of scripture together. Maybe even singing a song, having some family worship. Maybe revival just looks like you singing here, now, today, in this room, when we sing songs. Loud and proud, every song, every week, when we gather together. Those are all just ordinary things. There's nothing crazy about that. But then again, nothing is ordinary when God works through it. And through those seemingly ordinary means, he tends to bring about extraordinary results. And he can and does work not only without the knowledge of people or through the ordinary actions of ordinary people, but he can even work in spite of man's evil intent. Look at verse 9. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Violence is the reason they're coming. Violence is God's answer to the violence within Judah. And actually, through their violence and injustice, he has a plan in place to bring about his justice and his peace. As terrible as the Chaldeans, the Babylonians are going to be, they can't help but be part of God's plan to bring about his goodness. In spite of their evil intent. When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery way back in Genesis, after the fact, Joseph was able to see God's hand at work the entire time. Genesis 50 verse 20 says this, As for you, speaking to Joseph's brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. If Joseph doesn't get sold into slavery, he doesn't interpret the dream for Pharaoh, which results in Egypt and Joseph's brothers surviving the famine. If they don't go to Egypt to survive, they don't get brought out in the exodus. God doesn't save his people in the Exodus. They don't become a new nation, a new people. They don't become a new nation, a new people. They don't get a new king. They don't get a new king. They don't get to point toward the one king that is going to come, Jesus Christ, to save his people from their sins. Through the evil intent of Joseph's brothers, God enacted a plan through which good would happen not only immediately but ultimately. The simple evil act of his brothers, which was explicitly designed to thwart God's plan, to thwart God's justice, was actually what started the events that saved their very lives. God can work good for man's evil in spite of man's evil intentions. And really, none of that should shock us because, well, he is God. Whether we realize it or not, whether we acknowledge him or not, he is God even when he is unheeded, even when he's not paid attention to. Verse 10, at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. They scoff at kings, and yet they are footnotes in the plans of God. They laugh at rulers, and God rules over them. They may pile up earth and take it, but God formed the earth with the words from his mouth. As powerful as they may be, as quickly as they will come, as brutal as their power may appear, verse 11 tells us that they are potent, but passing. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. They are coming. They're going to win. But then they're going to pass on like the wind. Even as God gives Habakkuk an unexpected answer to teach Habakkuk unexpected lessons, as he shows us that we don't always hear him correctly, that he doesn't always give us the answers we want, we can trust and know that God works good even out of the evil of men. And I think the best, the clearest, the most obvious example of this is the cross of Jesus Christ. An innocent man dying a death he didn't deserve really looks like an act of pure evil, doesn't it? And yet, through the evil of sinful men, God, without the knowledge of the Pharisees or Pilate or the devil, through worldly means, a trial and execution, in spite of their evil intent, even though they thought that this would put an end to Christ and his followers, through that one single act, God is able to enact his perfect plan to save sinners from the ultimate consequences of our sins. The cross wasn't understood when God told us about it, when Jesus predicted it. A dead Messiah wasn't the result we would have planned or wanted. But God used that which appears to be evil To bring about his ultimate good. So even in the midst of hard passages. Of confusing plans. We can't forget the surpassing greatness. And goodness. Of the ultimate plan of God. Found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. These verses as dour and bleak as they may be. Actually end on a note of hope. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. The Babylonians are coming, and with them is going to come brutality and devastation. Things will get worse for Judah before they get better, but the Babylonians will sweep by like the wind and go on. The oppressors of God's people don't win the day. They don't have the final say. Violence and destruction isn't the last state of the people of God. And ultimately, the nail in their coffin, the way we know they won't ultimately triumph, is because their own might is their God. And in the face of the true God, of his power and might, the Babylonians don't stand a chance. So even though we haven't gotten to the true hope in Habakkuk yet, even though things within the text are about to go from bad to worse, and then from worse to worse sir. God shows us that he is still the one in charge. He is still able to promise something on the other side of every trial that we might face. So even when we get an unexpected answer, we can trust that we always know what to expect from God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to read your word with your people, to hear you speak to us through it. Help for us to know that you are good and to trust your plan, even in the midst of the unexpected answers we might receive. Help for us to continue to pray, to cry out, to continue to respond, even when you don't respond how we wish you would. Help us to perceive your answers better, to trust them more clearly. Help for us to know that even when you don't give us the answer we wanted, you have given us the answer that we needed, the answer which leads to our good, even when we might not understand what that is or what it means. Help us. Help for us to see your work in places we don't expect it to be, from people we don't expect you to use. Help for us to wait and to trust, even in the waiting, that you work good out of man's evil. Thank you for the cross, the ultimate act of good for your people, though it was intended as the ultimate act of evil. Help us to trust and know that you work that way and that you are still working that way. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.